0: We are, of course, continuing our series in the book of Colossians, so if you'll be finding that, we'll be in chapter 3 in just a moment. Aaron, I don't know who had the idea of adding the time to our back screen there, but I just want you to know that I can ignore that just as well as I can ignore my watch here, so that's not going to impact me at all. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, is our text. And what we're going to do this morning is clean house. You remember when you were young and your mom woke you up on a Saturday morning to say, today we are cleaning house. Wasn't very exciting, was it? It's certainly not the way you wanted to spend your Saturday. And it probably wasn't the way your mom wanted to spend her Saturday. Most people don't like to clean house, though there are, of course, some benefits to it, the acknowledgement of a cleaner house and how good that feels. But most don't want to spend their days off of work cleaning house, those weekly chores that we have to do. But of course, during COVID, most of us had some even deeper cleanings. We did some COVID cleaning. We got to that closet that we hadn't been in in a long time. And found some things in there that we didn't even know we still had and started throwing some of those things out only to have that, that immediate thought of, well, maybe I should keep it. I haven't used it in years, but I just might need it in the year to come. And so it's not just the dusting and vacuuming that we have to do on a regular or even weekly basis. There is the deeper cleaning of of getting rid of stuff in our closets or in our garage, things there that have just been accumulating and collecting dust. We use the same phrase when we think about business or even sports. The coach of a football team, a new coach, or the new CEO of a company will come in and It will be said of him or her, they are going to clean house. And that means they're going to get rid of some people that have been working there for a while who evidently, or at least in their opinion, are not doing their jobs. And so they're going to get rid of a bunch of them and bring in a bunch of new people. And when we talk about these kinds of things, getting rid of things in our house because we are cleaning up, we often think about clothing. In fact, sometimes... My wife reminds me that if I get a new piece of clothing, she expects me to throw out an old piece of clothing. But we don't tend to do that. We tend to just accumulate all of these things until the drawers no longer can hold them. But did you know that the Bible speaks of clothing concerning our Christian lives? That is, the Bible talks about taking off the old garments and putting on the new garments. It's not just Paul. It's other places in Scripture as well. In the book of Zechariah, Joshua is standing before an angel in filthy garments, and the Lord said, take away the filthy garments from him. See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So the taking off of old clothes and the putting on of new clothes is symbolic. The getting rid of the old and putting on the new is symbolic of our new way of life in Christ. So from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 this morning, we're going to clean our spiritual house. That is, we're going to see four things that we need to get rid of, that we need to cast aside. And then we're going to come back next week, and we're going to see some things we need to put on. Because this week, it's just the negative side. Take these things away, put these things off. But next week, we're going to come back on the positive side and put these things on. So if you go away from here this morning saying, well, that was nothing but negative. All the stuff we have to get rid of. Well, you got to come back next week to hear the stuff we are to replace those things with. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Some of your translations might say greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. I told you last week that we were making the transition from what we might consider the more theological parts of this letter to the practical aspects. And I acknowledge that I even hated to put it in that terminology because I don't want to give you the impression, the impression that theology is not practical because I believe it is. But Paul, usually in his letters, spends the first portion, I wanna say half, but it's, but it's not identical, but he spends the first half of a letter, including this one, talking theology, laying the foundations of whatever it is that's going on in the church from a theological standpoint, but he never stops there. He always then moves forward, fleshing that out in everyday life. That is theology played out in practice. So theology is practical, Because it always affects how we think, and how we think always affects how we live. So theology ought to always find expression in our daily Christian living. Now, if I could sum up the theology in this letter, and again, we've acknowledged that there's some difficulties here because we're only hearing one half of what has been going on. But if I could sum it up, I would say that Christ is sufficient, not only for salvation, but Christ is sufficient in sanctification as well. Christ is all we need, and he is everything we need. And when he saves us and begins to sanctify us, he inaugurates in us a new position with God. And Paul has spent two chapters discovering and discussing this point. He has labored to teach us that we've become a totally new person when we were converted. This is a privileged position that God grants us. And now what he's going to do is encourage us to become in practice what we already are in position. That is, he's been saying, this is who you are in Christ. And because this is who you are in Christ, now this is the way I want you to live your life. And I remind you of the three things we talked about last week, that we now have a new faith. We've been buried with Jesus by baptism unto death and we've been raised to walk in a new life. The moment you were saved, whether that was a couple of weeks ago or 80 years ago, you had a new faith. And that new faith then brought a new focus. And that is Christ is no longer just a a part of our lives or something we've heard about or someone we know a few facts about. Christ is now our life. When Christ, who is your life? And then we talked about a new future. Because that went on to say, when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then you also shall appear with him in glory. So we have a new future. And that future is when the glory of Christ is revealed, we will participate in that glory. Now, why do I remind you of all of those things from last week? Because I want you to see the connection to what we're talking about this week. I don't want you to go away from here saying that all he talked about today was four things we needed to get rid of, and it's a very man-centered sermon that only deals with things that we must put off, because I want you to understand that, yes, there are some commands here that we're going to be talking about, some things that we need to get rid of, but those things are anchored in who we are in Christ and the fact that Christ in his spirit is in us. So with all of that as a background, we get to the first of these things and Paul is calling us to be morally pure and therefore he says, get rid of immorality. This really does flow from what we've talked about before, chapter 2 and verse 6, we are to walk in him. Last week, we are to have a heavenly mindset, think on things that are above, not on things of the earth. All of these things leading us then to say, we need to get rid of immorality in our lives. We are to put these things to death because they are part of the former life. And I want you to notice that this is a command that we are obligated to follow. And I stress that it's a command because I don't want you to get the idea that you don't have a responsibility here. I know we talk about the fact that God is sovereign in salvation and God is sovereign in sanctification. That is, God is in control of all things and that is all true. But none of that negates the fact that there are some common sense, everyday decisions that you and I must make when it comes to the life of sanctification. Yes, God is in control, but there are just some decisions for us to make if we expect to grow in our relationship with Him. And so there are two lists of five elements each in this text, what scholars often call vice lists. And there are also virtue lists, not in this text, but we'll look at them next week where you see in verse 12, it says, put on thee then these things. And so there's that contrast. We're just doing two, using two weeks to deal with that, that contrast. And so these vice lists, the first of five are going to deal with our personal action. That is, this is how we are to act. And the second one is going to deal with our relationship with fellow believers. That is, this is how we are to relate to one another within the body of Christ. Not that they don't apply to our relationships outside the body, but Paul's primary concern here is our relationship within the body of Christ. And so the first word here is a word, sexual immorality, that refers to, in general, all kinds of sexual relationships outside of the norm or what God has called us to. And you may realize that in the early centuries, in many of the cities, including the city of Colossae, there was a lot of pagan worship and that pagan worship often incorporated sexual immorality within the worship of the many gods. And so the people to whom Paul is writing have been pulled out of, they've been saved out of that kind of culture or that kind of environment. And now no doubt they are having some struggles with the new morality that Christianity is calling them to live. How are we to live in in a new morality when we've been called out of this culture of immorality? And that is, in many ways, all we know. Now, I don't think I have to give you the statistics this morning concerning the sexual immorality that is rampant in our own culture. I don't think I have to name the various kinds of sexual sins, and there are many I don't think I have to give you examples. I think we are well aware of of how rampant this is in our culture as well, from young and old and all the way in between. In fact, in sort of an opposite example, I was at, with some of the other guys, I was at the Southern Baptist Convention the week before last, and on Monday we went to Uh, a conference. is called the SIN Conference. It's usually the pastor's conference, but the North American Mission Board took it over this year and did one of their SIN conferences. But anyway, as a part of that, we went to a luncheon. And the first part of the luncheon was a 30-minute concert. Now, honestly, I wasn't really paying attention to the concert all that well, because not only did I not know the guy, but I was hungry and they had delayed our lunch. And so I was not paying attention. In fact, one of the speakers on the platform later said, you, you, it's hard for people to listen when they haven't been fed. And I said, amen. I said, well, how, how, we haven't been fed. But anyway, this guy does a concert. I believe his name was Matthew West. And one of the last songs, I think the last song he did was a new song. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a new song that he had written for his teenage daughters. And the song was entitled, um, modest, modesty, modest is Hottest. That's what it was. Modest is Hottest. And it was a comical song encouraging his teenage daughters to dress modestly rather than provocatively. And we laughed and thought it was cute and it had some cultural references in it and didn't think anything more about it. And then I was reading this past week that he actually had to pull that song down from his YouTube channel because of criticism he got for it. He was being criticized for writing a comical song to his teenage daughters, encouraging them to dress modestly, and he got so much encouragement that he took the song down. Now who would have ever thought that in our culture, modesty would be so offensive that we can't even talk about it, even in a comical way. That's how sexualized our culture has become, that we don't take down any of that stuff. But we gotta take down a song that encourages teenagers to dress modestly. We are living in an age very much like this church in Colossae where sexual immorality is indeed rampant. John Piper has said that sin or lust gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. That's really the power of all temptation. It's the prospect that it will make us happier. And millions are buying into this idea that what's really important is life is whatever makes me happy. And that's what you ought to do. And that's the way people are living. That is not what Paul calls us to here and not what the Bible itself in a more general way calls us to. Again, the first word is sexual immorality. It's a general term to refer to all kinds of sex, all kinds of sex outside of marriage because you understand that the Bible speaks of sexual relations as being a gift from God for the marriage relationship. And then anything outside of that is outside of the will of God and therefore is not to be part of the life of a Christian who is following God. It's really as simple as that. The second word there in this list of five is impurity. This has to do with the defilement that inevitably comes from the sexual immorality that we just mentioned. Don't think for a moment that you can live outside of the will of God in this area of your life and it not affect your life. I mean, the writer of Proverbs tells us this. Can a man take fire in his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can he walk on coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not or shall not be innocent. The third word is the word passion. Some of your translations may use the word lust. This coupled with the fourth word, evil desires, speaks of passions that have gone bad or wrong. Because the word passion is in and of itself not negative. It can be positive or negative. There are desires that God has given us, frankly, including the sexual desire. That's a God-given desire that's to be used in his way and according to his will. And so it's not wrong in and of itself. Yet when it governs and controls our thoughts and actions, it becomes sin. And those misguided and misdirected uh, uh, passions lead us outside of the will of God into things that God never intended We talked last week about thinking on things that are above. And that's very difficult when our minds are filled with uncontrolled or lustful passions, which so dominate the minds of many. The last word in this list of five, covetousness, or I acknowledge that some of your translations may say greed. Greed is is simply an inappropriate desire for more. And what makes this so difficult or so dangerous is that it can actually look positive. It can actually make people think you're successful. That is, you can have greed, desire for more things or money, and the end result of that might be that people see you as successful and do not acknowledge that it is instead greed. But here, I think it all refers to this one idea of sexual immorality. In fact, I think greed can actually be the one word of these five that are controlling or the source of all the others. So again, I think we understand the nature of the problem. I think you understand and have seen very well that sex sells everything in our society. It's used by marketers all across the spectrum because that's what gets our attention these days. So how in the world in this sex-saturated culture can we do what Paul has called us to do here? Well, I don't have all of the answers for that, and I'm certainly not going to say it's easy, but I do want to give you a a few pointers. These are not an exhaustive list. These are not three easy steps that if you'll follow these, you are sure to conquer the sexual immorality that comes your way. But they are three helpful things that will help us in getting rid of sexual immorality. Number one, I would say if you are married, love your spouse. We're going to talk about this in a a few weeks, because when we get down to the latter portions of chapter 3, Paul is going to be talking about marriage, and in there, he is going to be talking about the love that a man ought to have for his wife. You probably know his words in Ephesians more so than these in Colossians, but in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And if we would follow that command to love our wives well, it would be easier to follow the command to get rid of sexual immorality. Proverbs again reminds us to be satisfied with our spouses and always be enraptured with her love. The second thing, and this applies to all of us whether married or not, is to flee or run from temptation. Don't play around with it, don't get as close as you can without going over the line, but flee temptation. We have the idea that we are to resist the temptation and flee the devil, but the Bible actually says the opposite. Resist the devil and flee from temptation. And Joseph is, of course, the quintessential Old Testament example of this. Joseph, who was at the time a servant of Potiphar living in his house, was was with Potiphar's wife in the house and she was making advances toward him and he ran from that. He fled from the house so much so that he left his jacket or coat behind because he understood the power of temptation and the pull of sexual immorality and so he fled from it as quickly as he could. And then thirdly, I would say that we need to guard our hearts. Again, I appeal to Proverbs, which gives us so much wisdom, where it says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And I remind you that we've already talked about the fact that heart in the New Testament is not what we think of heart. It's not talking about the organ that pumps blood. It is not talking about the emotions that we have in life. It is talking about the totality of the person, mind, will, and yes, even emotions. And so we are to guard all of that. And a guard is someone who makes sure that they stand watch and protect that which is allowed in. And that is our responsibility as Christians, as men and women. We need to guard what we allow into our hearts and into our minds because those images will in fact affect our thinking and ultimately then our decisions in the future. These three things, again, are not exhaustive, but when applied, they will help all of us. And there is not a person here who is immune from this particular temptation. Be careful, you who think you stand, lest you fall. This is something that all of us, from time to time, must face. I'm reminded of a seminary professor who was well known at his particular seminary for preaching on sexual immorality and lust. And so much so that they invited him every single year when seminary started to address the young men who had uh, signed up for seminary with this very important topic and, and, and preach to them about guarding their hearts and fleeing from sexual immorality. So every year he would preach this same sermon on this same topic. Even after he retired, they kept inviting him back to preach this sermon because of its importance and the significance to the, to the student body. One year after he'd retired, he comes back to preach it again. And afterwards, he's in a class helping teach the class, and a young man raises his hand, and he asks the old professor this question. He said, at what age does sexual lust and passion no longer become an issue? And the professor said to him, I don't know, but it's clearly sometime after 70. Because he was acknowledging that he's still struggling with it, even at the age of 70-plus. So we need to make sure that we get rid of sexual immorality. In fact, Paul makes it even stronger here and says that if we do not, wrath is coming upon those who are disobedient, meaning that if we don't guard this area in our lives, it is a sign that we are not genuinely converted to faith in Christ the wrath of God will come that's a future tense meaning that there is coming a day when Christ will return and he will bring wrath upon those who have not gotten rid of sexual immorality not perfection of course but there's also a sense in which there is a present tense to this we can go to Romans chapter 1 and there Paul uh, makes it very clear that part of the wrath of God is simply the consequences you get what you want If this is the way you want to live your life, then you're going to get the consequences that come with it, and that's part of God's wrath. So we are to get rid. We're going to clean house, which means we've got to get rid of sexual immorality. The second aspect here, we see this in verse 8, is we've got to get rid of bad attitudes. I told you this applies to all of us. And all of us from time to time certainly do have bad attitudes. So here we see the second list of five, though we're going to divide it up just a little bit. But here we have the word anger leading the list, this second list of vices. This is the way you used to live, verse 7 says. This is who you once were, but not any longer. And as a result, we must get rid of anger. We are all aware of the damage that this can cause. It's a time bomb waiting to explode. It smolders when we harbor bitterness and resentment towards someone else, and we can smile at them outwardly while seething on the inside. It's eating us alive, and because it's eating us alive, it will eventually come boiling to the surface and erupt, sending its deadly results to any who happen to be unfortunate enough to get in the way. Christians simply cannot live lives of anger and fulfill our commitment to Christ and each other at the same time. Now again, next week, we're going to look at the the putting on, the positive attributes. What are we going to replace these things with? And in fact, this putting on and putting off, I said it's a clothing imagery. It might even be a baptism imagery. There are some scholars that believe this is is an imagery of the baptismal uh, ritual. That is, you went down into the water, and when you came out, you took off those clothes because they were wet, and you replaced them with new clothes, picturing the relationship that we now have in Christ. So anger is part of the old man, the old person, and needs to go away. Likewise, wrath and malice. Synonyms, basically, though there might be an intensification here. But all three of these words are talking about the damage that is caused to the church as Christians fail to put these ungodly things away. And when it comes to anger, wrath, and malice, we often have excuses and blame others. Yes, I know I got angry, but it was because of my circumstances. And so we might even offer one of those half-hearted apologies. I'm sorry I got angry at you, but... And then we begin to explain whatever the circumstance was that made us angry. Or we blame other people. You know, i got to be honest with you, she she just lights my fuse. I don't know what it is about her, but she just... She just sends me over the top. It's really her fault, not mine. Or sometimes we blame even our personality. I'm just a hothead. I know. I've just got a quick temper. That's just who I am. All of which implies that we have no control over any of it. It's just a volcano that's going to erupt at certain times. But we can control it. It is our response to whatever is going on in our lives, and therefore, we can control it. Something else might trigger us, someone else might trigger us, but it is still our response that we are responsible for. So here I would simply say that you ought to know what those triggers are, and therefore, you can see them coming. And when they do come, you can take some deep breaths or talk to yourself. You know, I've said this before, talking to yourself is a good thing. I do it all the time. It doesn't mean I'm crazy, though you might think so. We're, we're teaching truth to ourselves. And so when you get in those circumstances, you can, you can begin to talk to yourself. Okay, I know I'm getting angry, and I need to just take a step away from this. I need to take some deep breaths. I need some time away so that I don't say or do something that I don't want to do or say. So you need to know those circumstances and, and do what is necessary in order to calm your anger down. Which leads us into the third thing not only getting rid of bad attitudes, but getting rid of bad speech. Slander is the next item here in the list, an attempt to run someone else's reputation down, to bring them into disrepute, to put them in a bad light. And who among among us is not guilty of this? We call it other things. We don't readily acknowledge that it's slander because that word is such a difficult word and so harsh. And so we couch it in other terms, sometimes even positive terms like love and concern, but it's slander. Then it goes on to talk about foul language or communication, whether that's coarse joking or just coarse language. Uh, In the meantime, it, it, it doesn't really matter. It's all general here. It's just saying things that we ought not to say. And Ephesians remind us, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is encouraging or edifying according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. The ministerial staff recently completed a a temperament study, a temperament workbook. And that was the theme verse of this particular study, that we are to learn how to speak to one another in ways that edify and encourage rather than in ways that build them, uh, that tear them down. And this certainly, apply, this certainly applies not only to our speech, but it applies to our emails and our online interactions. Just because you're in the comment section of a website doesn't mean you can say whatever you want. And then this, this next one's not in this list of five vices, it's pulled out separately. It's in verse 9, and perhaps it's pulled out because it is so significant, but he says we've got to get rid of bad speech, and that includes not only slander, but it includes lying as well. This is actually the third command in this section. The first command, put to death, therefore, verse 5. The second command, put them all away, verse 8. And the third command now is this command in verse 9, do not lie to one another. And so we are to have truth in our speech. We are to be truthful in what we say rather than lying, because lying undermines our whole relationship of trust. As a body of believers, we are to trust one another and love one another, and this can't be done when we cannot trust the words of someone else. In fact, I dare say this is the major issue in the Southern Baptist Convention. I acknowledged last week that there are multiple issues. We're talking about a critical race theory. We're talking about intersectionality. We're talking about social justice. We're talking about ordination of women. We're talking about a host of issues within the Southern Baptist Convention. But I think all of them boil down to this lack of trust. We don't know what to believe anymore. We don't know whose word is true. We don't know who's spinning what or who's taking something out of context. And therefore, trust has been undermined. Lying or twisting the facts does exactly this. That is why it is such a destructive force. A person who will lie and say anything to your face in order to save their own face is someone that you can't trust. And we've all had this experience. I've been in homes many times encouraging people to come to church and they tell me what I want to hear. Preacher, I'll be there on Sunday. But I know when I walk out the door that they have no intention of doing that. But I could tell by the way they were excusing or stating that they simply were not going to be there. But they told me what I wanted to hear in order that I might get out the door. You and I are to be men and women of our word. If we say we're going to do something, we ought to do it unless something hinders us. If we say we're going to be somewhere, we ought to be there. We ought to be men and women of our word because our reputation is at stake. But there's something more vital, and that is the reputation of our Lord. You and I as believers are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some sense, how you and I act is going to go a long way in forming conclusions for people about who Jesus is. Because they're gonna look at his followers to determine who they think he is. And therefore we have to make sure we are truthful in our relationships with others. Verse 10, we are to grow in our knowledge of the truth. And because of that, we must put away bad speech. Lastly, verses 10 and 11, we are to get rid of all barriers. There are no barriers in the eyes of God. We are all equal. We are made in the image of God and we are all equal in the eyes of God. Therefore, we have a responsibility to get rid of all barriers that might teach otherwise. He says this in verses 10 and 11, we are being renewed, we are becoming more like Jesus, and in the process of salvation and renewal, there are no distinctions. Now, that doesn't mean that these distinctions cease to exist. I mean, elsewhere, Paul says, I believe it's in Galatians, that there's neither male nor female. Well, those things still exist, but when it comes to relationship with Christ, there is no distinction. And so he gives us three barriers here that need to be removed. The first is the ethnic barrier. That's what he means when he talks about Greek or Jew or Jew or Gentile. You know that the Jews thought that any non-Jew was inferior to them merely because they were not Jews. That's why they often just referred to anybody else. It didn't matter, they're all Gentiles. There's Jew and there's Gentile, and the idea was that the Gentile is beneath the Jew. And it was a very difficult lesson for the early church to learn that this was simply not the case. That Christ saw no difference, he simply saw people who needed to be saved. And the same is true here when we come to circumcision or uncircumcision. Again, you know that that was a, a controversy in the early church, including in Colossae. Did you have to become Jewish in order to be saved. What part of the Jewish law did you have to follow in order to be made right with God? And here Paul reminds us there is no distinction. There is no Greek or Jew. There is no circumcision or uncircumcision. And though we may not argue on those bounds, we have to be very clear that we not set up these kinds of barriers as well and say, well, if you don't think the way I think about this point of theology, then you must not be saved. Or if you don't vote, for the same guy I vote for as president, then you must not be saved. And I've heard those arguments. I've heard people say those exact words. You can't vote for that person and be a Christian. These are just erecting barriers that aren't supposed to be there. There are no ethnic barriers. Secondly, there are no cultural barriers. That's what it means there when it says talks about barbarian and Scythian. Christianity is not reserved for one class of people. If you love the opera you can be a Christian. If you love NASCAR, well, I don't know. (laughs) Might be going too far. Now, I'm not trying to pit NASCAR against the opera. I'm just using some examples of people who like different things. Culturally, we have some differences, no doubt, but that's not a barrier when it comes to our relationship with Christ. The gospel is for all, and all kinds of people in a culture can be saved. The Scythian was the, the worst kind of person in their minds, the epitome of low or even no class. The Jewish historian Josephus said the Scythians delight in murdering people and are, like, are are little better than wild beasts. That's how bad they thought the Cynthians were, and yet Paul says, you know what? The Scythians, they can be saved as well. There's no barriers here. And there's no social barriers as well. We get that from the line here about slave and free." Because when it comes to faith in Christ, all are on equal ground. Now, again, I mentioned to you week one, I believe, that in all likelihood, Paul wrote not only the letter to Colossae, but at the same time, he wrote the letter of Philemon. And Philemon is the great example here uh, of this barrier being broken down. Philemon was a man who lived in Colossae and who owned slaves. And one of those slaves was a man by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus had run away, and he had somehow made his way to Rome, where Paul is in prison. And Paul had shared the gospel with him, and Onesimus had been saved. And now Paul is writing Philemon and sending Onesimus back to him. But he says in the letter of Philemon, I want you to receive back Onesimus, not as a runaway slave, who in that culture deserved death, but I want you to receive him as a brother in Christ. Because there are no barriers now. Again, the distinctions might remain, but there are no barriers when it comes to the gospel. Slavery might not be the major issue for us, but there are still social barriers nevertheless. And we must make sure that we do not erect these barriers, but instead that we tear them down, understanding that the gospel is for all. Now you say that's a lot to get rid of. That's a lot of cleaning house. And how can I do all of that? I don't have what it takes to do all that. And in one sense, you're exactly right. You don't. In another sense, you're absolutely wrong because you do. And what I mean by that is this. You cannot in your own strength consistently and continually clean house and get rid of all of these things. But you and I as believers, again, it's based on that theology. We have a new faith We have a new focus. We have a new future. We are new people in Christ. And Christ Jesus has, through his spirit, enabled us and equipped us and strengthened us to do all the things that he commands us. How do I know that? Well, look at the last phrase in verse 11. Christ is all and in all. We have to remember that there is discipline involved. I mean, there are some choices that we have to make. There are some decisions that we have to make. Not asceticism. We've already set that aside a couple of weeks ago. But there are some, some disciplines to make in our lives. But there's also dependence. Dependence. We must depend on the empowering and the equipping of the Holy Spirit because we cannot do it on our own. These two things are not opposed to one another. We must discipline ourselves for godliness. And yet we must depend wholeheartedly on Christ who dwells in us through his Spirit, who has enabled and equipped us to do everything he has commanded us to do. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you, not only for saving us, but for equipping us with your Holy Spirit to do the very things that you've commanded us to do. So not only do we ask your forgiveness this morning for the times when we we disobey, but I also pray that you'd forgive us for the times when we, we come to conclusions that we can't do it, that we don't have what it takes to be obedient to you, which is false humility, because you've told us we have everything because we have you. Christ who is our life, Christ who is all and in all. So I pray you would help us to see this morning that through you we have been equipped with everything we need to obey you. And as a result, I pray that you would give us the strength to obey you, that we might get rid of these things. And return next week and put on the new garments that match what it means to walk with you. is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.